Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking and I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Joe Garner about strategic grants. And in particular, we focus in on some of the terminology that's used in the not-for-profit sector, as well as thinking about sustainability, grant writing. As usual though, we start with Joe's early childhood and then work out how it is that she got into doing what she does today. If you enjoy this episode, then why not tell a friend and check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because I've now spoken with more than 260 other people. The point of Seeds is to tell stories so that we can learn from each other. Now let's get straight into this interview with Joe. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Joe Garner, who's the founder of Strategic Grants. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you because I think we work with similar types of people. And in particular, I know you do a lot with not-for-profits and charities and helping them understand funding sources and ways to to do things, really. So we're Mm going to get into that. But before we do, I would love to wind back in time and find out about your life. So could you start by telling us a bit about where you're from? And in particular, like think when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was life like? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, four or five years old. Okay, well, as you can hear from the accent, born and bred Aussie, um, I had the privilege of being born and bred on the Gold Coast um, and am now living in, in Brisbane just up the road and came to Brizzy to do university, actually. Um, Back when I went through, we didn't have uni options on the coast. So been here ever since, really. Um, And the Gold Coast, tell us a little bit about the Gold Coast, because to me, I've been there before, and there's kind of, it's it's grown a lot, right? It's very big tourist. Was it the same when you were growing up or what? No, not at all. We had, um, you know, little... um, beach shack basically sort of just you know a couple of blocks back from the beach and it was really low key and the area that I um, first grew up in Palm Beach it it has changed dramatically now um, unfortunately I think you know the high rises and everything that line the coast I certainly prefer the southern end to the northern end nowadays it's a little less developed um but yeah it's it's changed from what I remember um it's being you know fairly sleepy seaside town uh certainly down the southern end um to being a pretty big tourist destination <laughs> not that so we're getting like, tourists now <laughs> so it sounds like the beach would have been a big part of that childhood if you're just a couple doors away. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. It was. Yep. Did my surf lifesaving course when I was a teen and, and was a volunteer surf lifesaver. And yeah, just loved it. We spent a lot of time at the beach, um, certainly every weekend. Mum and dad would pack all the kids up and off we'd go <laughs> spend the day at the beach. It was fantastic. Oh, that's mm. awesome. 
yeah yeah was that was it quite a big family then did you have other siblings or yeah three siblings um two of whom still live down on the gold coast and uh with their kids so some great nieces and nephews are in there as well now so I still get down there and I've still got interestingly old school friends that are still living down there that I get down to see every so often as well so yeah it's, it's nice to be only an hour away from where you grew up yeah that's great so yeah. what sort of things did you enjoy you know as, as you're in your primary school years and and mm. you know not quite a young adult yet but yeah mm. what sort of subjects did you like more the social sciences, not really a pure math science kind of gal. Um, excelled at English and, interestingly, drama were my two passion um, subjects and, you know, quite liked the stage and uh, performing. So I guess that's, yeah, led me into a real passion for training and facilitating and presenting, um, you know, at conferences and things like that. I'm very comfortable in that zone. So, yeah, definitely English. And I guess that's sort of what led me into the grant writing side of things. Um, yeah. And what did you, what do you enjoy about drama? What is it about being on the stage or performing that you like? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think it's the, the getting into character, you know, and, and being able to tell a story, um, the artistic presentation and what it means and to really learn um yeah to really learn about the who wrote the the play um and the characters and uh not just learning a script but understanding who the character is so that you can portray it really well mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I was reminded of that recently, actually, because my daughter uh, was in a stage production at her school of Oliver. And so it was this amazing, Fantastic. you know, um, thinking about what life would have been like at the time yeah. that that story was written. And, yeah. you know, and, and then kind of feeling almost like you're immersed in it, even though mm. obviously, you know, it's, mm. it's more than 100 years later, but kind of getting a sense of Oh, yeah. What was life like back then? Yeah, and I think that's great for kids to do that, you know, and to really give them a, a new perspective on learning history as well through mm. through theatre and drama. I think that's really important. So, mm. yeah, that, that were my passion subjects by far. <laughs> I've wondered as well if people who like drama learn um, in some ways through that the ability to have empathy for mm -hmm. others because mm -hmm. you you've been able to project yourself into a character you know and then mm -hmm. kind of coming out from it yeah how you see the world might be slightly different I don't know it's just a theory <laughs> yeah I don't know and that just made me think actually of um one of our assessment pieces that we had to do in our class in grade 12 I think I was in and you know sensitive time adolescence it's all happening at that time of life and our drama teacher got us to think about um, an experience that had some fairly profound impact emotionally on us, whether it be positive or negative or fearful or loss or whatever it was, and to share that in this sort of intimate group setting, um, which I, I, yeah, I still remember that really clearly. And, and you're right, that's got that real empathy and there was a real closeness to this group of kids as a result of that exercise it was really interesting mm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's that community building, isn't it? You go through That's an experience totally. with a cohort of people yeah. and whether it could be a sports team as well, right? It's, yeah. it's that the bonds that you get as opposed to more individual, yeah. you know, writing cycling or, or something that's very focused mm. on the individual. Oh, mm. that's cool. So coming mm. to the end of high school, did you know what you wanted to study or what, what work you wanted to do? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. In fact, well, I did think that I wanted to be a school teacher and our 17 year old me thought that the, you know, prospect of having 10 or 12 weeks holiday a year was very appealing. <laughs> Um, so that was the main motivation. And interestingly, um, one of my teachers was one of my best friend's mums. And so she knew me quite well. And she took me aside and we had a chat and she said, I just don't think it's for you. Um, I really think that you should consider what else you do. And I went, oh, okay, uh, what am I going to do? And so I just did a business degree um, thinking, oh, well, you know, there's lots of different ways you can go with that, not really having a clue, but pretty quickly sorted out that economics and accounting weren't my deal, um, but marketing was fun and the HR side of things, um, the interpersonal skills side of things. So, there, you know, I ended up doing majors in marketing and IT. Hmm. Um, yeah, mm. just sort of stumbled my way through from there. <laughs> <laughs> and do you look back and wonder if you had gone down the teacher route, what that would have been like? Or do you think that that person is <laughs> I think the children are lucky that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, but I do think it's interesting that, as I said earlier, the passion side of the work that I do now is certainly in the training and education um, and, and bringing, you know, knowledge and experience to others um, that are working in, in what we work in um, yeah, and facilitating those um, really constructive meetings and discussions between funders and fund seekers and really teaching both of them what the other is looking for. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, that, I get to do it now, really. Yeah. Well, I'd love to find out more about that. Just to highlight, though, it's really interesting to me how often this happens in stories, because mm. I've talked with mm. about 260 people now. And wow. quite often people will say that an adult or someone, a mentor or someone came and spoke into their life mm. at that sort of 17, 18, 19 age when they weren't really mm. sure. And mm. I just wonder how often do we do that for young people in our lives? whether they're nieces or nephews or other people that we know well enough to do this. But um, sometimes I think we let that sort of slide by. And yet how often in our own lives have we appreciated when an adult who wasn't necessarily our parents took us aside and said, have you thought of this? Maybe your eyes need to be opened to this other opportunity. Mm, That's an interesting one because my children are 22 and 20. So, um, uh, yeah, we've had that conversation a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And even with some of their friends, you know, just um, talking to them about one fellow in particular who's just not happy with his course at all at the moment. And I thought, what are you doing? Why don't you take a break and, and reassess and look at some other options and do some work experience, you know? Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on kids to 
feel like they need to do one thing and um, certainly that's not been my career journey at all. Um, It's been quite diverse and really an accidental path to where I am now. Um, Yeah, and I like to share that story with them on, you know, I didn't have a plan. It just sort of all happened. Now there's a plan, but (laughs) there wasn't and certainly not when I was their age. But it's kind of liberating for people to hear that, I think. I know in my experience, like I moved to Japan when I was 21 and I spent a year there. So it was basically, I'd done three years at university. I still had two more to do. I wasn't finished yet, but I took a whole year long break. And when I reflect back and you know what I'm about to say, right? The five years at university versus the one year teaching English Mm -hmm. in Japan, like which one shaped me more? Which one did I learn more from? Sure, I got the professional qualification, which was important from university. But when I think about who I've become as a person, I've probably been shaped more by that Japan experience than by, Mm -hmm. you know, the formal education. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Mm. So so you're getting to the end of your studies then. Um, Yeah, what did happen next? So, you know, you're a graduating university student. Um, back in the day, you're circling the job ads in the newspaper, <laughs> um, which I was busy doing, and uh, just applied. And I became a marketing and functions coordinator in a hospitality Um Yeah, a big restaurateur in Brisbane owned a few venues and worked with them to do their marketing and, you know, all their PR and help book and coordinate functions. So, you know, two years uh, working my butt off (laughs) ridiculous hours in the hospitality industry for not great money and I thought, oh, I don't know if this is for me. And I just wasn't getting a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of, good feeling back you know it's probably dealing with customer complaints more and so I pretty yeah two years I was done I thought no I don't want to do this forever so just again started looking around and again back to the newspaper classifieds and um got myself a job at Diabetes Australia Queensland as their public relations and marketing um officer I think I was back then and In that role, there was a consultant doing all their fundraising and donor campaigns, special events and whatnot, and um, I was helping him with a few bits and pieces and just loved it. I just loved the work he was doing and he kind of presented to the CEO that I should be working with him and um, got me involved in the Fundraising Institute of Australia and loved all the people I met, loved all the charities that we all represented and, you know, the fact that we were raising money for mission delivery uh, rather than to increase <laughs> restaurateurs' pockets. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it just sort of is where I sit. I get a lot more joy um, working with and for charities. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's where it all began. So how long did you end up in that role with diabetes? Uh, I was there a couple of years and then I was um, approached by a colleague I'd met at um, Marta Hospitals Foundations in Brisbane, which are huge now. Uh, Back when I worked for them, we were about a $12 million 
uh, revenue. And I think now they're 80 something <laughs> million has grown substantially. But um, yeah, it, it was um, there that I really kind of found my strides and uh, was a fundraising manager and had a small team and working on loads of different uh, fundraising methodologies, so grants and sponsorships and special events and really overseeing everything. So mm-hmm. I got really diverse experience, um, got to use my writing that I love doing and uh, pitching and presenting, going out to the community clubs and the service clubs and whatnot who were raising money for um, different health-related projects and talking to them and I just used to love that. You know, you'd go out to these people who were part of Rotary Alliance or whatever it is and they're volunteering so much and giving so much back to the community um, and they really raise so much money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and to go out and meet them, receive the check and then tell them what was going to happen with that money, um, yeah, just loved it. Really cool work. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'd love love to find out a bit more about strategic grants because I want to ask you some questions about um, fundraising and and other things. But can you just set the scene in terms of strategic grants? And because that's been going a long time now. Yeah, since 2009. So I left MARTA on maternity leave um, and never went back. (laughs) Um, And you know, what happened was in between babies, um, charities that I knew uh, knew that I was home with the bubs and just got a couple of phone calls saying, do you want to do our grant writing from home? You don't have to come in. I said, perfect, okay, and word spread that I was doing this and I set up a little sole trader consultancy gig, ended yeah. up needing some subcontractors and established the company in its current form in 2009 and set up a New Zealand entity in 2014. Mm. Um, And now I have, um, sorry, about 18 employees across Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, And we literally work with hundreds of not-for-profits across both countries, across every sector. There's not a sector that we don't work in. Uh, So it's new and interesting every day. That's amazing. And so is that active? um, Because Australia is a little bit different from New Zealand Mm because there's states and territories and things. So um, do you have capacity within each of the main centres in Australia or how does that work? Yeah, we do. Look, we're all, uh, we're a remote-based organisation. So everybody works from a home office and you'll have to excuse my bevels and whatnot because at the moment um, I've just relocated from an office into a home office again. But everybody's in their home offices. They're scattered everywhere, um, Melbourne, Sydney, regional areas across New South Wales, Townsville, um, and then New Zealand, we've got Christchurch, Auckland, Cambridge. I think that covers the spread. Yeah. Yep. So, and we just sort of facilitate the way we work as a team through um, at least, you know, there's a regular weekly Zoom meeting and then the team all work together as we need to and do as much client interfacing um, 
at different industry events and through, you know, travelling around and meeting when we can. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now we're all looking forward to getting back to that post-COVID. Yeah, I'm sure. I'd love to find out a little bit more about some of the things I, you know, having dealt with hundreds of not-for-profits, yeah. I'm sure that there are certain trends and things which you've seen come across your desk over and over and over. I'd love to yeah. find out a little bit about what those might be. So I'm kind of planting the seed of that question, but I'd also love to get your perspective on something that I've been reflecting on. And mm-hmm. that is the terminology that we use when we talk about this particular type of sector. Um, yeah. And in particular, the framing of it, if we think about the word not for profit, mm. it's, it's like everyone, I think people know what we're talking about. Like it's charities, it's, you know, organizations that are doing good. They're usually led from the heart. They're, they're giving back in some way, but yeah. I would love to hear your perspective and, and, just off the top of your head thoughts in terms of the terminology, because Mm. one of the things that I've been worried about for some time is that words do matter. And when we use the word not for profit, we're framing this whole sector by reference to a different sector. And we're, we're, we're placing it as in, uh, well, to start with (laughs) the first word is a negative. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's a, not this we're not this and I just I don't know I I have some thoughts but I'll let you maybe have a riff off of that see what you think Mm, I love that question (laughs) (laughs) I I couldn't agree with you more that the term not-for-profit automatically has um you know a negative connotation and I think uh it positions the sector in a way that we shouldn't be making a profit when in fact We are the sector that needs to be making the biggest profit. And I think um, profit for purpose or for purpose, um, you know, mission-driven business, um, there are so many better terms that could be used, (laughs) I think, to to categorise the sector Um, because, I, you know, coming back to your original seed that you wanted me to think about and one of the biggest challenges is that very thing, you know, um, for-purpose organisations not considering themselves a business. Um, And I think that's one of the failings of the sector. I think that we need to think of ourselves as businesses and, and running, raising money, for good and for mission delivery. Mm. Um, and I know that's going to vary a lot between, uh, uh, between the size of the organisation, but, you know, business, there's tiny little businesses and then there's huge global corporations. So I, I don't see a difference there. It's just um, scaling accordingly. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I've, a really started- valid point. I've started using the terminology of for purpose more yeah, um, because okay. I like that. It's a, yeah. it's a positive thing it is. rather than being, we are not this, it's yeah. we are this. Yeah. And, and I think it's actually important that, that even you and me and those active in this area start to model, it. you know, like we almost yeah. have a responsibility to model the correct usage rather Absolutely. than you know, just taking on board what um, has been used in the past, because 
the future can be different. We can, we can model it. And um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge for me. I've started talking a lot more about impact as well. Mm. So here in mm. New Zealand, I, I host calls every two months for what I call the impact sector, yeah. which to me, the impact sector that embraces traditional, you know, using now we'll use quote marks, right? <laughs> Not for profits, but it also embraces for-profit businesses where they're integrating in mission and values driven as well. Yeah, so I, nice. I kind of like that terminology as well. Like I work with the impact sector rather than I work with not-for-profits. So Nice. Yeah. 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 I love both of those terms. And yes, we, we need to use it more uh, to be frank with you, I think that the term not for profit is used largely for us for our SEO rankings. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and web I believe you. Is, you know, we need to change it, um, you know, uh, across the board so that that's not an issue for organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it starts with these sorts of conversations because we'll yeah, get several, totally. we'll get hundreds potentially thousands of people listening to this conversation and then yeah. if they can be encouraged to take it to the next board meeting that they have and let's talk about it, it and, yeah you know let's start just slipping in the words in in the description mm. and over yeah, time yeah. it will change <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so, so coming back to that seed are yeah are there some consistent things you've mentioned that people sometimes don't treat their their and yeah. you know what they're doing as maybe with the same rigor as a business is that what you're getting at or absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. I think um I mean for us to when when organizations contact us about um providing support to them we have I guess if you like a checklist of whether they're funder ready um and whether we can actually add value so we are certainly only in the business of working with organizations that we feel we can add value and that they're ready uh, for us and to embark on a strategic fund seeking program to do that they need to have you know strong governance and they need to have a good strategic plan that dictates what it is that they're doing and what their objectives are to fulfill their mission and then yep. from that, you know, all their individual program plans and operational plans and then, you know, how, how do they know what they're doing is working? Uh, so the whole um, evaluation piece, which is still, there's a long way to go, I think, across the sector around understanding um, how it really is very simple to capture that data uh, and to analyze it and collate it and present it to funding partners and stakeholders in a meaningful way and a relevant way. Mm. But on the other side of the coin, you know, a coin, there's, there's the education that needs to happen with funders that, well, if you're giving an organization a really small amount of money, is that kind of reporting really required? And I think a good question to ask to the funders is what are you, why are you asking that information and what are you going to do with it? Um, so we certainly work with both sides and help to facilitate that discussion so that there can be a better understanding of the time it takes for a charity to, to do that work and then for the funder to really ask themselves what do we want to know? 
What are we going to do with that information? Why are we asking um, them for all of that detail when all we probably really need is this, you know? Mm. 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 So I think that the key things, just summing that up, are, you know, a strategic plan and clear program plans and then clear measures of, of performance and, and how they know they're, what they're doing is valuable and is working. Mm. That's really yeah. good. And that actually echoes the two things that I always tell people. So it shows mm. that it must be the right principles. Yeah, <laughs> Number yeah. one, what's your mission? What's your purpose? Yeah, be it. clear on your mission and your purpose. And yep. if you can't point to it in your founding document, if you mm-hmm. can't tell me what it is, mm-hmm. then there's some work that needs to be done. Number mm-hmm. two, how do you report on how you're fulfilling your mission and your purpose? Yeah. And those to me are the two criteria that I try to help people understand. Like if you can do those two things well, be clear on your mission and purpose and report on it, then you're well, well down the track. Absolutely. Yeah. I could not agree with you more. I think that the more we can, um, provide the education along those key messages, the stronger the sector will be. Mm. Yeah. So can I ask you another terminology question? I'm curious yeah. because you, it sounds like what you do is you stand as a bridge in between the, the charitable um, mm. for purpose organization mm. <laughs> and yeah. the, the people who maybe have the funds, the philanthropic yeah. donors, the community mm-hmm. foundations, the mm-hmm. city councils, the governments, you know, mm-hmm. those people. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been working or considering that relationship and mm-hmm. how it's evolved over the years? What mm-hmm. I mean is I think sometimes it comes with um, positions of power and weakness and that it's the funder who has all the power because they have all the money <laughs> and they're the ones telling the people receiving the money kind of what to do and what reports need to be given. And I'm just Mm. wondering if over time there won't be the ability to kind of move into more of an equilibrium where there's more of a co-working together, a relationship formed where it's not that this group here that has the money is better than this group over here. In fact, they couldn't do what they what this group is doing, you know, they Mm. couldn't reach out to people with mental health issues in the community, or they couldn't reach out, you know, to young people who need education. Mm. Um, Yeah. Have have you seen that there's some sort of a balancing starting to happen or any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I have. I have seen increased dialogue between the funders and the fund seekers and, um, I do know a lot of philanthropic funders particularly, you know, are moving to more engaged transformational grant making rather than transactional grant making. Mm-hmm. And by that, you know, I mean they're, they're talking to their beneficiaries and prospective beneficiaries about what is needed to make real change and lasting change. And they're a lot more open to having those conversations now. Um, and there are a lot of funders that I know personally um, who, you know, have such trusted relationships now with their beneficiaries uh, that they will just give them the money each year and say, look, 
we know that you know your business the best. We know that you know what your priority um, funding needs are. So here's the money. All I want from you in 12 months' time is for you to tell me how you spent it and what the benefits were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now that doesn't come from just throwing in an application to that effect. Obviously, that's a longer-term trusted partnership. Yep. And I think that certainly we educate um, for-profit organisations, for-purpose organisations on on telling funders what's required to make something happen. You know, if they want to invest in change in the community and this organisation is a specialist in creating that change, then they need to listen to them about how much it costs to do it. Um, Now, I've sat in on government funding briefing sessions where the prospective applicants of a particular funding round have challenged the government department around the funding model and said, that is not enough funding to do that. You know, you're asking us to do this, this, this and this. Well, we've done the budget and it doesn't add up. And, you know, they've gone back and reassessed it and, and reconsidered it and changed it. So I think what we've got to remember as specialists in service delivery is that the funders necessarily aren't that. They're not specialists and, and they need educating in a professional, courteous, respectful way. Mm. Um, so I think that the more open dialogues that can evolve around, um, you know, that mutual understanding of what is needed, then the playing field is definitely becoming more level. I wouldn't say it's entirely level yet. <laughs> and obviously there are some funders that are more open to having that really engaged partnership than others. And then there are some that are still more institutional and go through their processes and it's very prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch as it develops over time. Totally. Um, afterwards, I might, I'll send you a draft of a funding agreement that I prepared um, nice. with, with um, working with Kate Frickberg in Wellington. Yeah. Yeah. So she um, has, as you probably know, has been active for know, a long Kate. time in, in philanthropy. Yeah. And so we, we collaborated and worked together on, um, I, I basically trying to model that it isn't a power relationship, um, yeah. you know, that it, that it isn't so much we have the money and you don't come and bow down before us and, no. and we, may, we may decide to bestow upon you a grant, you know, mm-hmm. trying to use words. So in New Zealand, we have concepts that come from Te Ao Māori, and yes. there's one word in particular, which is kaitiakitanga, which means uh-huh. guardianship or stewardship. So yeah. it's saying, you know, you are the stewards of the vision and, and we want mm. to empower you as the kaitiaki or the stewards of the vision and mm. we're bringing money to the table. Yes, but mm. we need you to actually fulfill this. And I just mm. think it's a, it's a better model maybe of thinking about things. So I agree. Interested, I'll, I'll send you the agreement. And if anybody would, would like a copy, um, I'm happy to share it. I've, we've been doing a lot on the idea of fund holding in New Zealand mm-hmm. and trying to work out how charities can hold funds for other charities. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of born out of that work as well. There, there's a lot going on 
Um, yeah, but totally. I'm just going to mention as well. I think um, one of the earlier Seeds podcast guests um, was Dr. Catherine Brown, who is the CEO of the Lord Mayor's Charitable That's Foundation right. in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember this is now like three years ago, but she was telling me about some of the initiatives that they have, which yes. seem to be more of this collaborative modeling of a grant funding relationship mm-hmm. rather than a position of power, you know, imposing your will type of relationship. Mm, 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 absolutely. Um, Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation are a really engaged funding partner over here and have been involved in some great um, initiatives for the sector at large and brought in other funders to help enable those things. Um, mm, so we, you know, they're there is a lot more um, collaboration um, of funders and mm-hmm. sharing of ideas in, you know, how to how to make the whole process of grant giving um, more streamlined and and easier for um, those seeking the funding. Absolutely, I think the dialogue is always increasing, and I think that's one positive. <laughs> that has come out of COVID is that there has been a huge um, increased engagement level where funders have reached out to their beneficiaries and to the sector and said, what do you need? How can we help you? They've allowed for funds to be diverted to different organisational priority needs um, through, of course, open conversations around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I and I think that, um response and that uh, you know acknowledgement okay so maybe we don't need to be quite as rigid because we've allowed them to deviate from the plan on this occasion and it's working and you know the benefits are immense in enabling their business to keep on operating um and build their capacity to enable online delivery and whatnot and they've so they're seeing that effect now from COVID so hopefully it's a bit of a door opener to um yeah allowing the the charities to use the funds for what they know they need you know it is their business I mean with that of course there has to be strong accountability and checks and measures in place Mm. and again there has to be that level of trust in the organization's capability and competency to deliver Mm. and spend the money wisely yeah. And tell me, I'm curious if you've seen this trend as well, um, which is that if we're talking about for purpose organizations, not focusing so much about the legal entity type. Yeah. Um, have you seen, um, a, I guess, a more openness towards the, the concept of business itself being a means to deliver some social outcome or some some good. Some people use the term social enterprise, and I've used it myself, even written a book about social enterprise. But I'm just curious if that's something, because you've been doing this a while now, is that a trend that you're seeing or something that that came and went? Or yeah, what are your thoughts? So so the notion of social enterprise within, yeah, look, um, we work with some social enterprises. Um, I think the concept of, I guess when I think Of the term social enterprise, um, you know, what we see is the organisation running a a revenue 
um, building part of their business, whether it be for social purpose or not, that's generating that income that's feeding back into the business to sustain it. Um, Yeah, certainly I have seen a growth of it. Um, I think it's a fantastic idea for organisations, for for for-purpose organisations to set that up if they can, but again, only if it's on mission and it makes sense for them to do that. Um, You know, so... We um, have done work with Tafare Hookahuka over in New Zealand who are um, looking at bringing um, their programs for over to Australia for the Australian Indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've worked with quite a lot of social enterprise organisations over the years. So, yeah, it, it's not for all um, for-purpose organisations, though. I think it has to make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I was on a call um, recently with organized by um, basically it was uh, about charities mm. and, and legal side of things. Yep. And, and one of the speakers um, was telling us about some of the initiatives that, that they as a traditional charity were implementing mm. to see mm. if there was opportunities to diversify income streams Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was, um, yeah, it had been very successful. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it just shows, I guess, that there is options to for people to consider. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's where certainly seeking that external advice is really important around doing, you know, setting up a, a social enterprise, a business, and doing the whole business research piece um, around the the market um, potential and opportunity. Um, yeah, just the way they need to when they're setting up a new charitable organisation around the need for that particular um, mission delivery. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I'll try and remember and put a link in the show notes so we can put yeah. things for people to cook through. But that was a Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand event. Right. Um, okay. And yeah, there was some good, good discussion. So that was maybe a couple of weeks ago now. Okay. So I have a question for you, which is kind of a practical question. I'm asking mm-hmm. it on behalf of the charities who are listening, who uh, have never been to a grant writing course have never mm-hmm. um you know gone through the, the the programs and things what sort of advice would you give to them when they're coming to think about funding and and how maybe they could improve their grant writing and you know thinking yeah. about um increasing their funds by obviously making their case as well as they can any tips right. or tricks or thoughts absolutely <laughs> How long have we got? Um, So probably we review a lot of funding applications and I myself have been a funder and assessed applications and whatnot. So um, I would say the two most poorly answered questions on application forms are around the project need. So very clearly articulating what the need is, but backing it up with demonstrable evidence. So what do we as an organisation know what the need is from our time of doing the service delivery that we do? 
So we should have good organisational data around, you know, how many people or animals or environmental causes, which whatever the field that we work in is, we should know where we're falling short and um, be able to articulate that and what the need is and how it's not being replicated in the community. Um, and it might just come down to geographical differences, a specific um, demogra demographic group um, that's not being met. So I think that's really important to be very, very clear and back it up with that evidence um, uh, of need. Um, and likewise, then, if we are doing work that's similar to others, are we collaborating with them? You know, do we have um, referral pathways or sort of consortiums doing things together, sharing resources, whatever that looks like? Mm -hmm. And then the second um, key area is the outcomes question. So how do we know what we're doing um, is going to be successful and what does success look like? And for a lot of organisations, particularly when a funder asks for outcomes, which, as we know, are the changes or benefits, um, quite often there'll be a lovely list of outputs you know, written down, you know, like, well, we delivered this many workshops to this many people in these many communities. Um, and that's great data, um, absolutely, and it does show reach, but it doesn't tell us what the change has been as a result of those people attending those workshops. And there seems to be a fundamental uh, misunderstanding around that question frequently. So I would say, um, you know, in terms of getting ready to put an application in, uh, it's got to be something that a project plan that's well thought out. You know, we need to be clear on what our project aim is, what the strategies are. So from the time we receive the funding, step by step, what are we going to do and when are we going to do it by? Uh, what the need is. Um, what the budget is, what the outputs and outcomes are going to be and how we're going to actually measure that and report back on it. So I think they're the, the key criteria. Um, and then once the funding is received, making sure that the people in the organisation that are going to deliver that work uh, are very aware of what we've told the funder, we will be reporting back to them so that any of those evaluation measures can be built in at program delivery start time so that we've got our baseline data now of what it looks like and post-project what it looks like to measure that difference. And again, it really doesn't have to be hard. It's simple surveys and focus groups and, you know, rich qualitative feedback um, around what people have learnt and then increase in skills and confidence and then just backing that up with some statistics you know over 85 percent of participants said the same thing that's strong mm. and um oftentimes you know that's enough for funders as long as it's validated <laughs> so i yeah, think um yeah they're the key things yeah those are great points and i think there's if people are listening there's a lot there to unpack so um, yeah. What we might do is put some links in in the show notes as well, so people can click Absolutely. through. And I'm sure yeah. you've got resources. We've online. got lots. 
Yeah, yeah, we do. Absolutely. Lots of blogs and writing tips and writing examples, in fact, too, on the website that are all free downloadables. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things that I've been seeing recently, which I think is a good thing, a good change, is Mm -hmm. that there is maybe slightly less focus on we held 17 meetings and 72 people came and, and more of a focus on, you know, Jane came to this and her story before and then yeah. six months later after. And here's a photo of Jane now living in the new social housing or whatever yeah. it is that, that it actually connects in a personal way rather yeah. than just being like, here's the stats. Didn't we do well? But trying yeah. to tell that story with that personal because I think ultimately we are storytelling creatures and this is something that I think that's why I love doing the podcast because we like to hear about the story we Mm. we don't want to just you know I could have started the conversation just diving in and said right what what do fundraisers need to know to make their applications better and um, you know but to know the context and to to Mm. understand your a bit of your story as well Mm. as understanding what you're saying I think mm. it just adds more depth. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And collating that, um, you know, those rich qualitative case studies um, and all that beautiful feedback from people and what it has meant for them to be involved in a funded project, um, you know, and, and so many times it's life-changing. Um and to hear those stories and, and the difference that it's made, you only need, again, a couple of those um, and then just back it up with the statistics of, you know, there are 50 other cases just like this, you know. That, yep. that is just golden and it's music to funders' ears. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's fantastic. The storytelling is a very important part of the process, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed um, some people, because I do quite a bit in the social housing space over here, which is Mm -hmm. a really big need. And um, and so I'm I'm working with a group called Community Finance. And basically, Uh we sit in the middle between the housing projects and the philanthropic funders. So we're helping the, the philanthropic funders want to do something in the social housing area but mm-hmm. they don't have the capacity to do it themselves, but they have the money. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. the people over here, they can build the houses, but they don't have the money. So mm. we're kind of in the middle offering social bonds so that the philanthropic investors can come in to support. So in the last year, we've raised more than $53 million, which has wow. been amazing. And But the point of this is that um, it's real people and it's the stories of the real people moving into the houses that actually are the most impactful rather than saying we've, we've built 108 houses and blah, blah, blah. But to actually be able to say, you know, this is, this is the case study. This is the real person who's now benefiting. I think, I think we're going to see more of a move towards that because it's that, again, it's that storytelling piece. That's what we want to know. Look at the end of, um, at the end of the day, you know, I think what um, applicants need to remember is human beings are reading their applications. Yeah. And uh, in addition to creating a really pleasant reading experience in terms of me, you know, if I'm reading a 
an application and all of the information is there. It's succinct. I don't need to go looking for things. I don't need to think, did they really tell me what I wanted to know here? It's all there. And Mm -hmm. it's backed up with some beautiful case studies and stories of success and what it means to be part of the work of this organisation, then I'm sold, you know. And I think that's the objective for grant writers is to leave no unanswered question in a funder's mind and to um, motivate them to want to give to your organisation. Yeah, for sure. And and it applies across the whole Mm -hmm. spectrum as well, because if you think of the donors you know the people who want to give your charity some money yeah yeah that's that's what's going to connect with them too and Mm. i've in the last year probably worked with 40 or 50 charities to get charitable status in new zealand Uh and one of the things i tell the charities when they're filling in the application forms to become a charity which ultimately is in a way grant writing just a different Mm. type is you know there's a person sitting at the other end of the computer screen reading what you're going to write you're, yeah. you know it's not just a form to be filled in it's an actual person who's going to read it and go mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. I believe it no I don't believe it That's so it. yeah it's that mentality isn't it it is yeah yeah just um yeah people give to people at the end of the day and and to causes you know and I think we just need to remember that um and in our communications hmm. So stepping back from the detail, and this has been great to get into some of the nitty gritty of, you know, what it is that people need to be thinking about. I'm just mm. wondering for you and your your own life and your own mission, you know, when it, when you get to the end of your career and you look back or, you know, at some point in the future, what mm. is it that you're hoping to have achieved through being involved in this sector and, and doing what you do? Mm, that's an easy one. <laughs> Helping to create change. Um, You know, we are very much about celebrating the success um, with our clients and we encourage them always to let us know uh, when applications and things have been successful. And, um, yeah, nothing gives us greater joy, you know, and we share that internally through our team and everybody. I'm very lucky to have a very... Similarly passionate group of people to work with me um, in helping the organisations we support. And sincerely, nothing gives us all a greater thrill than hearing about an organisation that got the funding, you know, and that, and then furthermore, when they're updating us on the success of that project and then they're getting interest from other funders to continue the project and yeah, so I guess it's um, twofold. It's about also building the capacity um of the for-purpose sector absolutely um you know nothing again gives us greater joy than going in doing a piece of work and enabling them to move forward on their own they might still have one of our tools in place to make their life easier but at the end of the day you know if we can leave them to it and and build them up to a level where they don't need us to be so hands-on anymore that's a win for us so it's about really building the capacity of the sector and celebrating their successes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like that. It comes back to that old proverb, right, about um, teaching someone to fish. 
yeah. um, as opposed to giving them the fish. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. And we'd yeah. much rather teach them how to fish. <laughs> That's great. Mm. Well, Joe, I know that you run um, seminars, workshops, different things throughout mm-hmm. New Zealand and I presume Australia as well when we we're do. able to and we're not in lockdowns. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about what you do, is the best yeah. place going to be the website or where should Absolutely, we Absolutely, Steve. Yep. So just strategicgrants.co.nz. Mm-hmm. Um, we managed to get a workshop in, in Christchurch before lockdown. Um, and as soon as things are back, to the new normal, um, there'll be a new schedule of where our face-to-face workshops are. But in the meantime, um, there's loads of free resources on our website. As I say, there's so many blogs um, by our very clever team um, and they're all case studies and based on experience in working with a very diverse group of our four purpose organisations. So, yeah, um, by all means, uh, and contact us if we can help or if you want a grant seeker workshop in your town. Um, you, you know, if we get enough demand, off we'll go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll just put links to that and also to the Australian site so that Wonderful. people, because there's quite a few people in Australia who listen to this. So this it'll be perfect. nice for them as well yeah. to be able to easily access. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, it's been fascinating to hear about your journey. And the thing that struck me is, you know, when you started out finishing your studies, you didn't know exactly what you were going to get into. And yet look at how it's led to Mm -hmm. a path. And I think that's encouraging for people. Obviously, not everybody's going to follow your path, but I think it's encouraging, particularly for young people, to hear Mm -hmm. about different journeys and yeah. how if you keep pursuing that that mm-hmm. kind of in a way um you know you you land in the right place if you keep asking yeah. questions you keep searching um yeah. but then also just hearing how getting involved you know with the diabetes and then seeing the impact of that and then realizing that you could be helping on your own by setting up something new i thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting the personal connection there and then i really appreciated your insights about you know people who are writing grants what is the what are the key things that Nate they need to keep in mind yeah and also I'm, thank you for riffing with me on the meaning of words and the terminology that we use because I think yeah that was quite interesting to hear your perspective too yeah let's let's get the campaign going <laughs> <laughs> great well All thank right. you so much for joining me thanks so much Steve great to chat to you and look forward to keeping in touch I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Jo. For me, there were many highlights, and I really loved hearing her own story about how she journeyed into this area of helping nonprofits. But I also really liked that conversation, that kind of controversial point about why we refer to these organizations that are about purpose as not-for-profits. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. (music) 